Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. On this episode, I had the honor and privilege of reuniting with Sydney Brunson. Sydney started her career at IBM 10 years ago, and I was lucky enough to be her first manager. Sydney is a journalist turned strategist with a unique blend of experience in diversity and inclusion, management consulting, and people strategy. Her superpower is the ability to connect and influence, and she has a knack for leaning into hard and uncomfortable conversations with employees at all levels. She's anchored in doing work that is meaningful and directly impacts and uplifts historically excluded communities. I know I enjoyed this conversation at every turn, and I hope you will as well. Thanks for listening. Um, well, my name is Sydney Brunson. I think, you know, whenever I describe myself, it's always in a professional sense. And so I'm working on who, who am I outside of the nine to five. So in the five to nine part of my life, I'm a sister, partner, daughter, and hopefully really good friend. Um, I think that professionally, it's funny, I always tell this story that my career has been driven by food. And what I mean by that, you actually probably wouldn't know this, but the only reason why I went to the IBM information session is because being a broke college student, I have a choice of the ramen noodles that I could have had that night or the info session smelled delicious. And I was like, I'm just going to go in there because I want the free food. I was never expecting a career to emerge from that. And so <laughs> I feel like my professional life has been these series of very fortunate and unexpected events that took me as a journalism student to tech, to consulting, all the way up to now, you know, being fully immersed in DEI and culture. Um, so that's really who I am. I think I'm nimble, agile, and just looking for warmth and energy in everything I do. I love that. Looking for warmth and energy in everything I do. Um, you know, it, it reminds me this year, I just sat down and one of the exercises I do is I try and pick a word and kind of let that word be my companion through the year. And the word I chose this year was delight. So may I be delighted, may I experience delight, may I seek out delight. And as you describe that story, it, it brings it brings that resonance, right? Like you you let the sense, you know, the sense of smell um, lead you to a career. <laughs> Make a really important decision for me. Food, clearly you can see my motivator uh, in life. <laughs> is there food and is it good? Um, I'm always down. So 
So let's back up a little bit because you and I have known each other now quite a while. Um, yeah, I it's think, a decade. Right? Yeah, a decade. Yeah, it's going on a decade. Um, it, it, well, it's definitely it is a decade this year because when did when when would you have started at IBM? 2013. It was July 6th. I'm even making the date up, but it was early July. Okay, and and I had the privilege of having you on my team. Um, I believe I was one of your first managers. Is that right? You were the first like big girl adult job manager. <laughs> <laughs> the first. <laughs> well, it was. I remember it being such a privilege because you had this journalism background. And I remember I was reminiscing the other day about you and I sitting down in that office in DC, right? One of those high marble tables with the stools. And we were talking about projects and things that we could work on. And I remember being so invigorated by your ability to say, well, hang on a second, why are we doing that? And what are we trying to communicate here? And will the people that we're hoping to influence understand it? And your journalism angle made the work we were doing and change so much more vibrant. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious how you remember it. That's so, you know, it's funny. First of all, thank you. Because I think I was so nervous and having just immense amount of imposter syndrome, at least the first year, that I don't even think I thought I was that brilliant, you know, or leaving any gyms at all. It was just like... When are they going to find out I'm this journalism student and I know nothing about consulting and they probably made a bad decision. I think that was literally what it was for quite a while. Um, I just didn't understand. Is this the right fit? You know, Mm. and I was getting all the external affirmations, but I just hadn't convinced myself yet. Um, And so but what I do remember is the immense amount of support. Like I remember walking over to... um, what was that place we would, it starts with a D. It's like a restaurant. They had really good soup. It was like across the street. Um, it'll, it'll come to me later, mm. but like doing that and just exploring with you and you had so much what felt like this blind faith and trust in my work and who I was. Cause all of that was swirl, swirling around internally. Sure. And so that's what I remember is that you were extremely trusting and warm from the beginning. And I just didn't know what I was doing. So I was not thinking that I was making a right statement. I was like, probably left that conversation like that was stupid. Why did I say that? Um, But it's funny, you know, those moments in career. And I I mean, I still experience that. I think with every new job and gig, it's always like that question of like, was I really supposed to get this? Um, So that's one thing I'm pushing through is trusting that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's so helpful to hear you talk about that because one of the things that we always, you know, are negotiating is that imposterism. And I've said this before on episodes where I remember years ago, somebody said, stop calling it imposter syndrome because a syndrome implies that it's not curable, right? It's not, it's something that will be with you always when in fact um, it is an ism, right? So if we can work against an ism, um, we can learn, we can grow. And I remember thinking, boy, that's a way, ge- way more generous way to look at this, right? Because I, I think, honestly, like, everybody suffers it. Um, you know, the thing about change, you and I have had the opportunity to manage a lot of change in organizations is, I heard this recently, somebody said, you're always one step behind. So by nature of what we do, we're never going to be perfect. If you're done, if you're perfect, you're probably not doing it right. 
Exactly. That's, I'm going to change that language, ism. Definitely. Um, and, you know, I think one of the biggest things someone told me once in my career is like, everyone is faking it. So also trying to realize if everyone else, to your point, also doesn't feel that sure or like that genius. Well, some people, some people are just convinced, right? That they are the Picasso of their industry. But most people are equally trying to, you know, question and confirm their own selves and beliefs. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it is definitely a person, a human problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit. So you started at IBM and I remember, and if we could do a little bit of, uh, walking down memory lane, I remember it was 2014. I was actually out here in Washington. I was working on a project out here in Washington state and you and I had a long conversation on the phone because I was driving from Seattle to Ellensburg, uh, Washington. And I remember because it was the first time I went over the pass, the mountains, and I was in a rental car and you and I had a pre-scheduled call and we were going to talk about career aspirations and things you wanted to do differently and try new things. And um, if I recall, you were pretty nervous to have that conversation, but we talked all the way over the mountains and then all the way down the mountains and you you landed really well uh, from that conversation. Do you remember that? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't, again, like I said, my I was so my brain was so preoccupied in just trying to figure it out that I was no, no that I'm I'm trying to think of it. I remember talking to you quite a bit, and I do mm-hmm. remember when you trapped. But I'm like that particular conversation. Yeah, I feel like it was it was you were about to make kind of like a declaration, like a hey, I want to try something new, or I want to go into another part of the business, or I want to take on another opportunity. And I remember it being, you know, a healthy dose of nerves, right? That you that you were saying, how do I have this conversation? And for me, what I really appreciated about it was we had the conversation, and we had the conversation for a couple hours. Yeah. Okay, actually, was it? Okay, I think I remember the conversation. Because was I going to a different project or something like that? It was either a different project or a different part of the business. Um, but but for me, what I remember was you were very, um, you had this conviction, right? Like, hey, there's more that I can do here. There's more that I want to do here. And, and it was, you know, it was one of those challenges that I think a lot of consultants, especially young, you know, young people in that industry, feel, which is like, hey, I'm on this one project, I'm fully billable, um, but I want to try something new, but I don't want to let my project manager down, but I don't want to, you know, upset the the person that went to bat for me here. Like, how do I have that conversation? And and the thing I remember was we had the conversation and we both ended up better for it. And, you know, nerves or not, like it was a great conversation. And I remember thinking to myself, that's someone who's going to go far. And clearly I was right. <laughs> so funny but I mean that goes back to my point my earlier point that you were always very trusting like I felt like I could just say the thing or mm-hmm. talk through even the unresolved whatever was going on so I absolutely believe that the conversation happened in that way and I'm that's interesting because I don't yeah I don't think if I reflect on that that I had all this gusto and <laughs> in that point of my career but maybe I did you yeah. know that's the thing you don't Sometimes the macro moment takes over the micro um, wins. And so that's interesting. Yeah. And, and I think it's a, it's a really great um, reminder, sort of standing in your power, right? Standing in your own voice. And I think even as you describe it, sometimes we don't remember we do these very consequential moments for ourselves. And so 
I felt it was really important to sort of reshare that with you because that that stands out to me. Like I remember exactly where I was, the car I was in, the the, the view of the mountains, because we were having this like real conversation that honestly a lot of people don't have around, you know, wishes and desires and what do I want to do in my career? Who do I want to be? And and that I think that set you on a path that led to an incredible uh trajectory in your career. So kudos. Thank you. And I, and I can say that's true about myself and maybe it was growing up as an only child, but hyper-independent and when things don't work well for me, I can readily identify and I have to change. Like I am not a long sufferer. <laughs> I am not someone who can just be for better or for worse. And so I always try to challenge people that I know in my network and circles to trust themselves in that way. I think it's easier said than done. I'm like, I am also shaking in my boots internally. <laughs> but to your point, a lot of goodness came after, I always refer to IBM as my career eureka. It was how I started working in DNI and would have never expected to be on the other side of it in this way. But it was to that point, it was all of these cues and signals. So I think maybe the year after we had that conversation is when I um, was leading diversity recruiting for the CBD program. So the same program I started in kind of full mm -hmm. circle there. Yeah. And that was simply because I was like, I don't see enough other black consultants. It was really like, this is weird. What are the skill sets I can apply to help change it? Like that's, mm -hmm. it was that simple. I was not like, this is gonna, I'm gonna champion, you know, a new career path. It was just a personal interest yeah. um, that I was convicted by. And someone was like, well, if you want to figure it out, you can figure it out. Here's the job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and here we are. Um, yeah. And, and I think what's, what's also really notable to me is that was early on. That was like 2014, 2015. Like the arc of progress of when you say, you know, as a, as a black female looking around consulting, like there were not a lot of people. And this is still something that's being worked on. So I'm curious, like from where you were at that time to where we are now, and you've been you've been in places like in you know Pinterest and Microsoft, obviously, and you've done incredible work with some incredible companies and brands. As you reflect back on taking that, you know, that first opportunity to be truly on the front line, right? Like recruiting new talent into an organization, has it changed? Um, to the degree you had hoped? I mean, we certainly have work to do still, but I'm curious as you reflect back on that. I'd say yes and no. So I think it's so funny, you know, when we even talk about DNI now, it's like DEIB and there's all these other letters that keep getting added. Like it was literally just the D, it was just diversity at the time that I was doing it. There was no thoughts about all of these other aspects of an employee life cycle, you know, it, of, you know, yeah, you're hired, but how do you feel like you belong and are included? Like all of those things, I think were much more nuanced conversations that did not exist. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful that the industry has grown in that way that it's beyond just that, just getting talent in, but what are you doing to cultivate it while it's there? However, I also think that representation still, as you mentioned, still has a way to go. And I think the weird part about this, let me not say weird. The interesting part about this work is that we're fighting like the societal issue as well. So in some ways, it's this thing where 
you have to recognize that you can only make so much change within those four walls because you're competing against the larger ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. That we continue to see every day is suffering when we think about all of the isms, right? The other negative ones that exist in our society, um, they aren't, they haven't gone away. They've changed some, but they Mm -hmm. still exist. And so to that point, what I can say is I think employers have a large amount of accountability Um, that definitely exists. I think even the way that recruiters think about like their Boolean search and how to find talent and way more sophisticated than it existed. I think when I was, yeah, when I was at IBM, recruiting from HBCUs was pretty new. Yeah. Like it wasn't this like well thought strategy and this partnership with like IBM or Howard or any of that. It was very on the, on the fringe, um, Mm -hmm. of we're finding new ways to find talent. And so, I'm excited to see things like, you know, Google creating this whole partnership with, for example, Howard and having engineers and residents and all of that. But there's still quite a ways to go because I think what's also happened with this surge of, let's say, D&I work is that there are some communities who feel like they're on the defense. Like in my role, sometimes I talk to white male leaders who are like, one, I don't want to say anything because I'm going to get fired or fear out of any type of retribution for what might be said so I'm just going to kind of shut up and put my head down to this fact that they feel that by let's say hiring um, marginalized communities means that they will be you know fired right that they're that they're both can't exist like this myth that hiring increasing representation of one group means decreasing the other Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think people are just naturally just nervous just very nervous about conversations and things that they haven't had to talk about. And in tech, most headquarters are in very white mm-hmm. <laughs> places, you know, like the mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest. So some people aren't, for example, even seeing a black person when they go to the grocery store. Right. So having this like kind of drinking from a fire hose of all this stuff when you're at work is hard when your life that you go to doesn't reflect that. Um, so I, yeah, I said a lot to say that Yes and no. Lots mm-hmm. of progress, but lots of ways to go. But I think people have to be realistic in the fact that this is not just about Microsoft or IBM or Pinterest. Right. Um, it's about America specifically, but but the mm-hmm. world itself. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that you kind of delineate the like, okay, there's there's stuff you do inside four walls and then there's stuff in society. And I think sometimes the you know, inadvertently, sometimes leaders feel or put the pressure on themselves that like, within these four walls, I have to solve that macro problem, right? And what a pressure to be under. I'm not, I mean, that's no excuse to not try, right? I absolutely agree with you. But it can be daunting for anyone who feels like, okay, in these four walls, within my influence of change, I have to make sure that it's so profound that I make a ripple in society or the world or the country when there's so much that's actually outside of your control. And so one of the things I think has, has been really reflective for me over the years of you know working in this space is let's start the conversation by understanding what is in your control. Like what is in your influence? Um, where can you make change happen? And start there. Um, and you know, I remember having conversations years ago with with leaders who would say things like, we're trying, we just can't find the talent. 
And the next question would be, where are you looking? Um, and what was really interesting is there were people who felt they weren't given permission to look in other communities, right? They weren't given permission to go talk to a, you know, um, HBCU. And it was kind of this game of like, I'm waiting for somebody to tell me, or to your point, I don't want to make a mistake in doing so. And in all that time, all that potential progress was lost. And, and I just think it's really interesting, you know, talking to people who, uh, who go to conferences like Afrotech and, you know, the, there's these literally these gatherings of talent. And then when people come back and say, we just, we couldn't find anybody. What? <laughs> like, where were you? I mean, you were there, but were you? Um, and, and I think there's just these, they seem small, but they're not, right? Like there's these, these moments in time that people are either apprehensive to seize the moment and to start a conversation or say, no, this is my opportunity to make change happen today. But that has to be sustained because to your point, we're talking about societal, historical, um, you know, forces that have been at play for a long time. Um, and, and it gets, it's, it's gotta be really exhausting um, to, to say to yourself, like, I have to wake up every day and, and ask those questions, right? Go beyond the Boolean search, as you said. Like, you know, our our taxonomies and our Boolean searches are not going to solve this problem. Um, and in some way it comes with discomfort, but that's life. Like that's the only way we're gonna change and make change happen. So I know I've said a lot there, but I would just love your thoughts as, as you've heard, you've probably heard all of these uh, responses before, yeah? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I chuckle because, yeah, I hear everything. Uh, it's interesting being in this space, kind of what people <laughs> want to share and impart on you. I think that, you know, I always talk about intention versus impact. I think yeah. that's one. And so, for example, in 2020, we saw people, you know, put Black Lives Matter signs in their yard. The intent, awesome, right? You're trying to show solidarity with the community. Impact is like actually do you have proximity to black people in real life, right? Like, mm -hmm. do you, how are you using privilege and your own agency to make a greater impact for someone? Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's always kind of thinking about that is, okay, there, there's the, and, and I don't even, I hate to say performative because I don't even think some people are trying to perform. I think they're doing the best that they can with what they know. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's always like, let's redirect that into your point in, in the microcosm of your life. How do you do that? So I remember talking to a leader, like their child was very active in sports. And every time they would share pictures, like I saw very all white teams that they were on. And so I was like, you're asking me what to do. I was like, perhaps a great opportunity is to make sure, you know, involve your child in, in sports, maybe on the other side of town or maybe in a different district that you're in that has more diversity. So you, one, now get to connect with parents. Your child has more proximity so that they grow. Like, it's the little things of just altering it a little bit. And, and to your point, it's uncomfortable. It's maybe driving an extra 20 minutes, but the impact is profound. Um, yeah. So I think that's one. And then I think number two is, 
I always hear, especially the more senior that we go, I, I think that that's where you also see a bigger clip in representation. I think organizations have done a great job with entry to like mid career, but when we get to director plus, you see a large cliff. And I think that two things are happening. One, we create job descriptions looking literally for unicorns, right? Like yep. we want somebody with 10 years at Amazon doing this specific product, like all of these things were, there are only three people qualified, right? And you need to hope to get one. I think that's one of the things like people can do a lot better in what's necessary and then what's some added benefits. People are smart. If you're smart, you can learn on the job, i.e. a consultant that was a journalist, right? I just figured it out. Um, but I think people also have to look at the historic importance there, right? So if we look at the history uh, I typically center this in black American life because that's what I am. But if, for example, when my mother was born, black folks couldn't vote. So we think about all the things down the line, right? So then that meant that likely my grandparents, which they were not lawyers, doctors, couldn't pursue, like that makes headwinds and there's a domino effect on what that means for future generations. So again, Mm -hmm. you have to be careful about to that point of this kind of 20 plus year career person yeah, because a lot of times these communities were excluded, right? It, it wasn't that folks weren't capable or weren't interested; they literally were legally excluded to some things, and that we still see it showing up in different things in our American society. And so that's always the thing I challenge people: is like, let's back up and let's kind of look. And we don't have to go far. I think everyone thinks when you say right. back up to American slavery, I'm like. I just talked about my mom and I'm not right. that old, mm-hmm. um, even having that experience. And so I think that's the other thing I challenge people with is that look at it less of, again, to that kind of defensive argument of we don't want to lower the bar or if you hire this, what does that mean for me? But look at what we've done historically to literally keep people from opportunities. Don't you think it's important to undo that? Mm-hmm. And we have to start it today, right? We can't rewind to 1960, but we can do something in 2023. And that's often changing your mind about what talent looks like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are kind of my philosophies. And also I think lastly, once the talent comes in, because I also see this and feel this happening, are you going to accept the difference? Are you going yes. to truly embody inclusion and belonging, right? Um mm-hmm. I remember even especially back to IBM days in the federal consulting world, I just felt so different because a lot of my clients were white. A lot of them were just so very different than me. And I'm like, I don't necessarily want to talk about Seinfeld. You know, I'd rather talk about something else. And that doesn't mean that that's not okay that you watch that. But I feel as a black person in corporate space, I felt like I had to do homework of learning what white people are doing so that Mm -hmm. I can start, you know, talking about the things in white pop culture. Because Mm -hmm. if I started to talk about, you know, me watching the BET Awards over the Country Music Awards, it's kind of like, what's that? Like, what's going on? But it's my lived experience, right? Right. But it felt like there isn't sometimes space for that. Even hair. Like, Mm -hmm. all of these things about how... I used to need to modify myself. Like I would have never had braids back in when you met me. I always had my hair straight, like very nice coiled hair because it just didn't feel accepted. And so I just say a lot to say there are a lot of things to do 
to bring the talent in the door. And then also, how do you make people feel good? Like, no yeah. one wants to do the extra job of the labor yeah. of having to pretend. Yeah, there's, um, I forget what it, I think the term is called covering. Is that the technical term? Yeah. And I remember when I took a, um, you know, a DNI course actually here at Microsoft, and it was the first place that actually had a full, you know, module talking about this term that I was like, that's the thing that nobody talks about. Right. And I remember, you know, when I was at IBM at the time, it was before I came out. Um, and I remember walking a lot of the hallways in a different experience, but in some way, a similar experience to my, you know, coworkers and friends who were black because we were both covering, right, in a different way. The difference is my covering was, some might say, invisible, right? The covering of some colleagues, it was visible. And I remember thinking, to your point around how do you, you know, fit in a culture and in consulting it was we were we were literally going through membranes of culture five to six times a day right like there's the ibm culture then there's the culture of my client then there's the culture of getting on the metro between my client and the office then there's the culture of like the lobby and then there's the culture of like the coffee shop and i remember thinking this is dizzying like I don't know what to say, what not to say. I'm afraid somebody's going to find this out about me. I don't know. And and all of that was invisible. And I thought to myself, you know, as I came to learn more, I was like, this is exhausting for someone who doesn't look any different. Mm-hmm. People would assume. Right. Right. And and I and to me, that's why I would really lean in and start, you know, asking friends like, hey, how does this feel? Like, what does this feel like? You know, and you gave that great example of like, you might be watching the BET Awards, somebody else is watching the Country Music Awards. I was a guy who was watching both. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, I mean, I was talking the other day to one of my guests and people sometimes are shocked to learn that like my favorite singer of all time is Tevin Campbell. And they're like- Wait, I think I knew that. I'm pretty sure you knew that. You shared that. Yeah, I was going to say, not surprised. Actually, I think I knew that. (laughs) And and people are like, really? And I said, yeah. And and you know, it's it's one of these things that why should that be a really? Yeah. Right. Like. And I find it that we're revisiting these things often, but it's also in those moments of, you know, sometimes it's a surprise to people. But let the surprise be. A conversation starter. Let the surprise be a delight. Let the surprise be a tell me more. Right. And that's the app, you know, the abstract, but also the opportunity that we have um, to say, look, I, I'd like to learn more. And, you know, the, the example you gave around, you know, privilege, right? It's this comes down to privilege and access and agency, as you described. It reminds me of that video that was kind of circling the internet at the time, I think in 2020, where um, it shows a a group of students kind of all lined up almost like on a start line. And then the teacher says, you know, if you came from a household that had two happily married parents, step forward, you know, and and as he goes through these, these things that are, I would consider privileged to have, 
the groups of people got less and less and less. And you basically had maybe one or two or three people that were way more advanced, closer to the finish line. And then they turn around and they're like, okay, everybody go. And everybody's like, this isn't fair. Bingo, right? That's that's the lived experience every day of people. Um, and I think sometimes we get in our sort of our carpal lean, like just like, okay, like, and I'm just going to excel past the, past the traffic and forget that the lived experience of every single person is different. But that's also where we have to start and understand you can't dock somebody for being late <laughs> when they're not allowed to be in the carpool lane. <laughs> right, right, right. Or they're walking. <laughs> or they're walking. They're not even, right, right. Thank you. Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I think there are so many little reminders that, you know, it takes granting permission. It takes somebody saying, spend time there. Like, don't, don't look past it. Let it be a learning opportunity because we have a lot further to go. Um, and we're not even talking about the assault on this stuff. Like, we're not even getting into the, the things that people are doing proactively to take away people's rights in this country. Like, we're not even going into that because that'll send me spinning and I won't come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I saw, I think it was somewhere in North Carolina, it had to be regional news, but even, I think it was yesterday, um, the Proud Boys going and protesting at a drag storytelling at like a library. And I just think that's so egregious. And I see so much fear, you know, like that's the thing I unpack. Like you are so afraid that your response is to fight, right? Because that's what you, what you're, you're fearing. And it's not a real fear, right? You, you have created this idea that's not real and you've chosen to fight against it. And I think that's one of the worst things that I think have happened in the last three years is that this misinformation social media culture, sometimes when we talk about rabbit holes and we said we weren't going to talk about this, but here we are. I like, I, I don't know why I do this, but I start myself going down and exploring like very right wing conservative, like all right. It's the journalist. Like, I go deep. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm like, well, what are they taught? Like, I kind of want to know what their perception is, what information. And I'm just fascinated by all of the falsehoods that are just claimed as like, because someone sees it in a meme. They're like, yep, there we go. You know, and then goes and shares it to their neighbor. And then insert, we see like, it's fascinating. The, the lack of <laughs> reading that we mm -hmm. see in our own society. No one checks no one, no, and like, maybe this is the journalist. Anytime someone presents something, I'm like, I need two sources. Um, and yeah, it's not <laughs> just Wikipedia, right? Like, <laughs> but I think that that's fascinating. And just an example of when I really look at our society today and all of the, the good, bad, and worse, people are really scared. Mm -hmm. I think that that's why everyone is acting a fool, as my mom <laughs> would say. It's because people are so scared but they don't realize that the thing they're afraid of is this bigger system right it's not again the drag storytelling at your local library like you're afraid of other things that are mm -hmm. that are bigger and when i think about you know even in last election year especially being here in the south there was a lot of low-income white folks who actually would benefit from 
partnering with other low-income communities. We, you actually have the same goals. They're not doing any better than you just look different and aligning, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. these other folks that you think, and I won't name but do it, aren't actually here to save you. You actually have less in common with them outside of race, you know? Right. But we could right. talk about history and the overseer and how poor white communities were expected to to servitude, but you still got to be slightly elevated than black people. There's a there's a whole reason why. And I just am fascinated by it every day. Um, yeah. People you know, who are struggling but refuse to save themselves. And it's so interesting because one of the things I was recently reading about, um, I, I experienced recently a breathwork session. I don't know if you know anything about breathwork, right? And so um, one of the things that I researched because like you, right, <laughs> I want at least two sources <laughs> um, before I, before I, um, you know, echo anything, before I try anything, I will research it to the nth degree. And maybe that's the consultant in us, right? Once a consultant, always a consultant. But one of the things I researched in, in this breath work um, was that there are a lot of people that end up going to do that work and what comes through through them is anger and fighting and sort of it ends up being this sort of like you're fighting the invisible demons but but at the root of it is fear and at the root of fear is sadness and as you were talking it reminded me so much of you know as people who are out there you know spouting what they're spouting one of the overwhelming emotions i have for those people is sadness like i i feel that i'm like behind all that noise and vitriol and it is just it is an unaddressed sadness and a wound that that somebody refuses to acknowledge and i think to myself like how much would be different if those people were met in that place so it's almost like grief work yes yes Absolutely. You know, I thought about, I saw a visual the other day, or maybe it was a clip on Twitter of like these people protesting outside of a Planned Parenthood. And I was like, first of all, how do you have the time? You've made sign, you've invested a lot into your day to go and ruin someone else's. So we never have I ever once, regardless of what side of the fence I was on any issue, wanted to go like, no, never had that much of a conviction. Mm-mm. And I just think that that's fascinating. And I mean, they're out there all day, like mm-hmm. all like 12 hour shift. And that right. is to your point. Gosh. Well, and here's here's the thing, like the sadness is so deep. And, and, and the challenge I would say is to spend out like to go write posters, to spend out all day. I'd ask them, how do you feel afterwards? Do you feel that you've been filled up at all? Do you feel like you're nourished at all? Do you feel, and maybe some do, but I I would be a person to bet that no, they actually probably feel more depleted and more enraged and more separate. Which is why they go it. do it again. <laughs> Which is why they're at, they're like, and Tuesday, we're at the, <laughs> the next one. Because you can't get enough. It's, I mean, it's, it's an amnesia. Mm-hmm. It really, really beguiles me. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, 
I've, I started what last year in therapy and just even personally, the work and all you want to talk about inter change, the yeah. internal change yeah. to that point. I'm like so many people in some ways it feels like a privilege, right? I'm like so many people could benefit from just sitting with themselves, working out all of their things to your point. What's triggering that? What has you making this sign right now late at night? Why are you on a court, standing on a corner for 12 hours? Mm -hmm. um, and some people never get it. And they just live their lives, to your point, in that deep sadness. And then that's it. You know, that mm -hmm. it's that's not a existence. way to live. Yeah. It's really, it's sad. It's, it's like, um, you know, the Harry Potter analogy. And I know that's an even, that's even a metaphor that's a privilege. But, you know, that's. For those that have seen it, the, the the dementors, right? Like those kind of dark beings that come and know your deepest sadness, and they and they go there to the point that you can't even catch your breath, right? Everything feels cold, you can't breathe, um, and and I, I just hope honestly for people that the opportunity to engage, to meet somebody new, to read something new, to walk in somebody's shoes. Like the more you do that, I personally believe it's like your Patronus, right? It's like your magic wand and it's like zap the Dementor and 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 they can't come back. But But there are some people who know no other world than a world without Dementors. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I've started to try to, as I think, as I get back to my little Sydney, like seeing everybody else in that way, like we are yeah. all just really big children. <laughs> um, and some of us, you know, the things that happen, then you haven't been able, right? You haven't been able to grow past, or mm -hmm. you also have abandoned some of the things where you weren't able to just be a child, you know, exactly. and, and you're searching for it in the insert, whatever wild things that people are doing. But I'm like, everyone is just a big child we didn't get manuals right everyone's just figuring out and just trying to go off of their own experiences um and do the best that they can and right. yeah that has been really fascinating when i experience conflict or anything i'm like wonder what your little self you know yes. what happened to your little self for you yeah. to show up in this way mm -hmm. um because a lot of it is not about you. I think that's been the biggest thing that I've learned is you're sometimes how people are reacting or, you know, their their actions have nothing to do with you, actually. Right, right. Even though they're projecting it onto you, it's not it's not you. Um, and sometimes I think society tells us that we are in our agency when we are able to react as if something is happening to us personally, when in fact it's the opposite. You are in your agency when you can take nothing personally. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. When nothing bothers you because right. you can't. Yeah. I had my therapist. We talked actually yesterday about like distress tolerance and this thing called tip, like literally calming your, what is it? Your parasympathetic, um, parasympathetic. system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and all these things that are happening biologically, right? Like you're, that's a part of being human, but what are you doing? Right. To go back yeah. in yourself, right. To pause. Mm -hmm. Um, and take note of that. But yeah, it's, I just think if, <laughs> if there was a world where everyone was actively in therapy with a great therapist, what would our society be? If people were I mean, doing breath work and all yeah, of this. Right. Like, why is it that I discovered how to reset my vagus nerve at 44? Right. Like very simple. I remember somebody said, okay, and this, you know, there's many ways to do it, but it was so simple. They said, take your fingers, interlock them, put your palms out. Right stretch as far as you can, 
and then kind of turn your head as far as it can go to the left, right? And you're like, okay, come back to center, do the same thing to the right, okay? And then what's really interesting, you actually hold your head straight on, keep, keep this pose, but you, you move your eyes as far as they can go to the left without moving your head. And you hold them there. And what's really interesting is you'll eventually yawn. And then you do the same thing to the right and you'll eventually yawn. And then look how far my head will turn. It goes way further than your initial ability to turn. And that is the resetting of the vagus nerve. That's just one way. I feel way. like I just saw a magic trick. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> well, the bunny out the hat. That's what that, wow. Right. And I'm 44 and I have privilege and I have agency, but like, this is the stuff that we should be telling kids in schools, in classrooms, in, you know, because if I can do that and then reapproach the problem, then it's not happening to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so many, I, there's so many things that if my younger self would have known how different they would have been. And I think about, I am constantly in a battle of how much math I had to take in my life and how if they would have replaced that with some social and emotional learning, I have yet to use slope or the Pythagorean theorem in real life. But I absolutely would have benefited from resetting my vagus nerve. Not to take away all of the math. Some of it was yeah. good, but it got to a point where like, unless you're pursuing that, I didn't need, I needed real life skills. Help me with taxes. Help, because yes. that was fascinating. Right. My first job, literally, when I got my first paycheck bill, I was confused. I was yeah. like, I have been robbed. Where is my Who money? Is FICA? <laughs> They are not a beneficiary or, or I did. I, li, I mean, literally, I was confused. I was like, no, no, no. I knew the salary, but like the, the math is not mathing here. Um, yeah, that that's what I needed to know. Uh. You needed to reset your Vegas nerve after you got that first paycheck. Because <laughs> I had all these plans, you know, and it was like, oh, no, no, you don't get the whole thing. Like just, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's 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 true. Like those are things that. And honestly, like, that's where I think about, you know, both of us, right? We are in a place of privilege where we can go do that, right? We can go into organizations like a Microsoft, a Pinterest, an IBM. And because of the work we've done and the conversations we've had and the change we've led, we are invited into the room. And once we are invited into the room, and that's not always the case, and I understand that, there's still many, many barriers. But once you're invited into the room, have a conversation about how to reset your vagus nerve. And watch everybody go, what did he just say? Right, right. And then the next day, look past desk and see right. her. <laughs> That's how change happens. It does. That simply. That simply. I mean, think about the ALS bucket challenge and how yeah. many people we saw pouring. I, like It was like, open, exactly. Imagine if that was the reset your Vegas nerve challenge. <laughs> I think we've come up with something. I think we have, yes. Um, before we do go viral, um, tell me, tell me what, tell me what's ahead for you, um, because you're you're obviously in a fascinating time in your life, and uh, gosh, it's been a decade since we've chatted. I feel like I just saw you yesterday, which is such a wonderful feeling, by the way. Um, but tell me what's ahead for Sydney. Yeah, 
I think for me, what's really important and, and that I've been, I think ever since 2020, I think 2020 was a shifting year for people for a myriad of reasons. And for me, I kind of uncovered this Japanese concept called Ikigai. So really just this, yeah. And again, journalism and nerd went into a whole, like bought three books, just totally was like, I need to figure out what that is. And so kind of spending this time, like getting closer to that, like what, what really makes me happy? And how can I go do more of that? So for one, I'm a total wanderlust. I have trips to New Orleans next week. I just got from back from Denver, going to Amsterdam, Belgium. I want to travel, see, and experience. I feel like life is so so much more well-lived um, with travel. Personally, that's my philosophy. And then I'm like, okay, what's purpose, what's meaning, and work? I feel like tech, all the things going on in the industry, it's really interesting because a decade ago, it felt like the hottest spot to be. It felt like if you weren't in tech, you're not in it, right? And everyone wants to be a part of technology. Now it's like, well, what else is going on? Like, what, what have I missed? What are some tech adjacent industries that maybe mm-hmm. I want to take my skills and talent to? Because also some things I've noticed, tech is a lot more advanced than a lot of the work that I'm doing. There are other industries that are still... Back, you know, where IBM was a decade ago with just diversity, still trying, you know, don't even go to an HBCU, right? So for me, I think that that's next. Like, where can I build? Where can I take kind of the summation of the skills experience I've had in very fast, hyper growth companies with deep innovation and take it somewhere else? Yeah. Has the same appetite, but it hasn't been actualized. I think that's it. So like, Investing in things that make me happy, and then how do I invest in bringing an organization up to speed, so to say? I love the way you said tech adjacent because that, to me, like again, we're we're both very similar. We both love maps. Like I love to look at maps. I love to. I don't care where I am. I was just talking to a very good friend who's spending some incredible time in the Scottish Highlands, right? And I was chatting with him, and he was telling me where he's at. He's like in this apartment, Airbnb. And he's like, there's this wonderful coffee shop across the road. And while he's talking, I'm totally on Google Maps. And I'm and I'm just sitting there and I'm looking at, okay, there's two coffee shops in this little town that he's in. And he said, it's a great coffee shop. So it's probably the unorthodox coffee shop. And I literally said to him, are you in a, an apartment building called this? And he's like, how did you know that? And I said, because I have the map up. But that's literally how my mind works, right? Is it's important for me to be able to visualize the people I care about, where they are in the world, right? Um, And that's what I did in that exercise. And I love how you said tech adjacent, because to me, there's so many people that we know in tech, right? Um, We've grown up in this space and consulting and tech, and we've had the amazing privilege to be able to do the work. But one of the things I'm also conscious about is it's different than it was 10 years ago. There's a lot of people impacted by what's changing in the layoffs in tech. And so I wonder how they're doing and just by drawing that map in my mind of tech adjacent, that tells me there's another land beyond that edge of the map that they can go to and, to your point, build amazing things and bring you know, just as much development and progress to places like healthcare and places like financial services. And honestly, like that's where change is going to – the seeds of change are going to get planted that are going to – make society change. Sometimes we have to do it from the inside out, like we were talking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's so exciting and all the things that, you know, change the workforce. I've never seen as many remote roles ever, 
right? I now have like collecting dust on all the suits that I have because it's like, what do I need them for? Versus, you know, 10 years ago, I was in black and navy blue almost every day. Um, And so that's so it unlocks all of this potential, right? Before maybe I couldn't take a job that was headquartered in Switzerland. I can now, might be tough with the time zones, but like, there's nothing stopping you. Um, That feels really, really invigorating to me. It feels just like, this is the precipice of a new decade, at least in my professional yeah. life. And like, what are you going to do next? And who knows, right? Like, <laughs> I would have never, as I started, I would have never guessed that this is where I would be. Um, but I think younger Sydney's very proud of it. So it's like, what do you do next? Trust that intuition. Have the conversations. Make the questions that I had with you at the Marble High Top, you know, back in um, Hamilton Square. Is Hamilton Square. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and just trust it. And so yeah. I'm excited. I think that life is just so full of so many things to discover. Um, and I'm trying to make that five to nine bigger than a nine to five. So that's my challenge this year. I love that. What a great place to just kind of wrap it. Um, thank you, Sydney. Like, I'm so inspired, like the ikigai and the, you know, knowing that you're going to be traveling and, and seeing the world through a new pair of eyes, right? Because you've got all this excitement of possibility and building ahead of you. Um, thank you for joining, sharing your story. Um, if people wanted to learn more about you, where's, where's the best place for them to kind of reach out or follow? Yeah. LinkedIn, it's always a good place for me. So just my first and last name there. And then same with my Twitter is Sydney underscore Brunson. Um, I'm not as good as keeping up with it, but now that you said this, I'm going to like be on a posting frenzy, like (laughs) with the podcast is posted. I'm going to like, yep, let me make sure there's some fresh content. Um, But that's really, yeah, those are the main places. Awesome. Well, uh, enjoy your travels. Thank you so much for this reunion. I feel so invigorated, inspired. I feel like it was just yesterday we were grabbing soup. I'm going to have to look up that. I, I doubt that place is there anymore. You oh, know? It's literally about to bother me. I haven't <laughs> been to D.C. in a while, or at least that part of D.C. Mm-hmm. I have been to the Hamilton, so I have eaten Yeah, that's there. still there. That I know is still there.